0: This is Book Club Cheats, a podcast for book clubbers who just can't seem to find the time to read. I'm your host, Lippi turner Roman, and today we'll be talking about Mexican Gothic by Silvia Morano garcia I have been researching early 20th century Mexican history for a project I'm working on. Under Porfirio Diaz, there was enormous economic growth, but many of the businesses were owned by British and American companies. After the Mexican Revolution of 1910 and the rebuilding stage of the nation, the gap between rich and poor kept growing. Really fascinating period, especially as I'm ashamed to say I'm a complete novice at Mexican history. I love absorbing historical details from fiction, a fun way to get to know history. Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia is set in Mexico during the 1950s. The book is in third-person narrative. The chapters are fairly short. Mexican Gothic explores themes of desire and control, feminism, colonialism, racism, sexism, sexual assault, and mental well-being. Mexican Gothic is aptly named. Moreno Garcia incorporates all the elements of a classic Gothic novel. Some readers may find the book pulpy and think it's unserious tale just a spooky story. But like any good Gothic literature, Mexican Gothic approaches many serious subjects. There is a dark, picturesque scenery, a haunted house, a high rank protagonist, a strange family with deep dark secrets, mystery and romance, supernatural and paranormal activity, fear and terror, parapsychological and psychological elements, and a damsel in distress, who is really held in a castle in the middle of nowhere and being terrorized by a madman. Wow, really looking forward to plowing into this story. Rich, flirty and a little bored, 20-year-old Noemi Nataboda is the it girl of 1950s Mexico City. Noemi's parents want her to get married to a suitable person and become a homemaker, but that's not Noemi's dream. She wants to go to college to study anthropology. One night after a party, Noemi is summoned to her father's study. He's deeply worried. Noemi's cousin Catalina has written a crazy letter Page 7. He is trying to poison me. This house is sick with rot. Stinks of decay brims with every single evil and cruel sentiment. I have tried to hold on to my wits to keep this foulness away, but I cannot, and I find myself losing track of time and thoughts. Please, please. They are cruel and unkind, and they will not let me go. I bar my door, but still they come. They whisper at nights. And I'm so afraid of these restless dead, these ghosts, fleshless things, the snake eating its tail, the foul ground beneath our feet, the false faces and false tongues, the web upon which the spider walks, making the strings vibrate. I am Catalina, Catalina Taboda, Catalina! ''Kata, Kata, come out to play. I miss Naomi. I pray I'll see you again. You must come for me, Naomi. You have to save me. I cannot save myself as much as I wish to. I'm bound. Threads like iron through my mind and my skin and it's there in the walls. It does not release its hold on me. So I must ask you to spring me free. Cut it from me. Stop them now.'' For God's sake, hurry, Catalina. Um, you can see why Naomi's father is just a tiny bit worried. He needs, wants and needs Naomi to go to High Place, the house that is sick with rot, and find out what's going on. He makes a bargain with Naomi. Go find out what's going on with Catalina and that untrustworthy husband of hers, and Noemi can go to college. Well, you know, Naomi is on the first train out of Mexico City. Catalina, who is five years older than Naomi, came to live with Naomi's family when she was orphaned. Catalina regaled a young Naomi with brooding fairy tales. Her uncle, next Catalina's first attempt at getting married, to the family's shock, Catalina conducted her next romance in secret, only producing her fiancé, Virgil Doyle, a few weeks before the very hasty wedding. Naomi can't even remember what Virgil really looks like. After the wedding, Virgil whisked Catalina away to High Place in the remote mountainous mining region of El Trifano. Naomi is met at El Trifano station by Virgil's very anemic-looking second cousin, Francis. High Place sits on the side of a mountain, and the ride-up is precarious and nerve-wracking, with a dense fog descending suddenly. High Place is just super creepy, Something out of a horror movie. It's an English manor house encased in fog with a cemetery behind it, halfway up a remote mountain in Mexico, just the place to inspire sweet dreams. High place is totally past its glory, crumbling and decrepit, sinisteringly looming over the landscape like a gargoyle. The house is brooding and musty. The decay and darkness seeps inside. The Victorian threadbare furniture, heavy musty curtains, ornate and heavily embossed, mouldy green, gold and blue wallpaper feels so oppressive. High place is also littered with a dual family symbol, the Orobus, the circular symbol of a snake eating its tail. And though there is electricity, everybody uses candles and lanterns, pushing the creep factor and eeriness even further, as if you needed more. Nomi meets the rest of the Doyles and their servants. Patriarch Howard Doyle is really old. He's repulsive in a sinister and slithering way. Howard is essentially a skull kept together with wrinkles and a couple of hairs, a body with dark boils all over, bleeding purple gums, bloated, ulcerated legs, and strangely white teeth and piercing blue eyes. Virgil, his son, and Catalina's husband is handsome, silent, brooding, misunderstood, and a creepy bully, whose strange sexual magnetism pulls Naomi. Florence, Francis's mother, takes care of high place, and is Catalina's minder and jailer. Florence is full of rules no smoking, be quiet in the house, and no talking at dinner. And Francis Well Francis floats about, lost in the mix in the shadows, waiting for his fate. Besides being creepy, incredibly English, none of the family except Francis speak or understand Spanish. The doll's overarching trait, besides their eeriness and weirdness, is their whiteness. They are probably the palest, whitest bunch of people Naomi has ever seen. And the servants, well, all three are mute, expressionless and vacant-eyed. High Place is obviously going to be a really cool party house. It's going to be a fun stay for Naomi. The sedated, spaced-out Catalina tells Naomi that she has a fever and is sick with tuberculosis. She can't remember writing any letter, but she tells Naomi it's impossible to get out of High Place. Florence pops up to medicate Catalina before she can say any more. At dinner, Howard pointedly remarks on Naomi's dark skin in comparison to the fair Clara Catalina. Naomi's mother has indigenous blood, while Catalina's was French. Howard waxes poetically about eugenics, a subject he's obsessed by. The library at High Point is filled to the rafters with books on the subject. Howard asks Naomi what she thinks of the intermarriage between inferior and superior races. A disgusted and repulsed Naomi retorts that Europeans could benefit by intermarrying with indigenous peoples. Virgil tells Naomi that he knows her family blame him for Catalina's state, that he's taking care of Catalina, that he's doing the best he can. Catalina's not well. She sent that letter in the midst of her sickness. Virgil accuses Naomi of trying to snatch Catalina away. Next day, Catalina asks Naomi to get her some secret tonic from Marta Duvel in the village. Catalina then amps up the spook factor, telling Naomi that there are ghosts in the wall to speak quietly. And carefully as others are listening. Before Naomi can ask what she's talking about, the door's personal physician, Dr. Cummings, enters. According to him, there's nothing to worry about. Everything is fine with Catalina. Virgil says Catalina has a history of depression and angry Naomi wants a second opinion and maybe have Catalina see a psychiatrist. Virgil gives Naomi permission to get a second opinion. Naomi borrows Francis's car and goes into town. Dr. Camilio, the local physician, doesn't want to get involved with the Doyles, but he agrees to see Catalina. Marta tells Naomi to come back in a week to get the tonic. During further visits, Marta and Dr. Camilio narrate the history of the Doyles and the curse, the bad air and evil that weigh down on High Point. It's a chilling story. Marta also gives Naomi a bracelet to protect her from evil. I think she's going to need it. Howard and his brother Leland arrive from England to reopen the city's old mines. Howard brings English earth along with him. The brothers start to build High Place. Many local workers become sick with a strange fever which makes them rant and rave before killing them. Agnes, Howard's first wife, also dies. Howard builds the cemetery behind High Place for Agnes's body. Howard then marries Alice, Agnes's sister, who gives him Ruth and Virgil. Leland and his wife have Florence and Michael. The strange fever returns to kill local workers again. Rumours start flying around that workers without families in the village are being buried in mass graves in the cemetery. When Howard stops paying the workers the customary portion of silver, Aurelio, a miner, starts a strike. Strike ends when Aurelio is found dead. Ruth becomes engaged to her cousin Michael, but she falls in love with Aurelio's nephew Benito, You know nothing good is gonna come at this. Sure enough, Benito disappears. Before Ruth and Michael's wedding, Ruth laces the food with a sleeping potion and shoots everyone. She kills her parents and Michael. Howard miraculously survives. Ruth turns the gun on herself. After her parents' death, Florence marries an outsider, Richard, Francis' father. Richard doesn't take to High Place at all and wants to leave. He starts to rave and rant and is found dead at the bottom of a ravine. When questioned by Naomi about Ruth murdering her family, Frances says Ruth should have burned High Place to the ground. Right from the first night, Naomi has been dreaming or hallucinating some weird and graphic dreams flowers spouting from the green and gold wallpaper, a mute golden woman dressed in golden lace, nightmares of Howard hovering over her as she sleeps, a woman's voice urging her to open her eyes, a woman giving birth of ritual cannibalism of the baby and the live embalming of the mother, of walking with Ruth who carries a rifle, the walls of the house beating like a heart, of Ruth sobbing, turning the rifle on herself. The dreams get more and more intense the longer Naomi stays in high place. When Dr. Caramelio comes to see Catalina, she talks about the ghosts in the wall. The doctor recommends psychiatric help. Florence warns Naomi against tempting Francis with stories about the joys of Mexico City. She says Francis has accepted his life at high place. Unable to smoke in the house, Naomi goes to the cemetery where she keeps bumping into Francis and keeps hearing a buzzing sound, like hundreds of trapped bees. The first time, a thick and sinister fog suddenly descends and a frightened Naomi is relieved to encounter Francis collecting mushrooms. Plants and mushrooms are Francis's passion and he takes delight in showing Naomi his collection of preserved plants. During another smoking session, Nomi notices that the statue of Agnes has one word epitaph, mother, which is strange since Agnes didn't have any children. Virgil and Ruth are Alice's children. Nomi again encounters Francis. He's tired. In fact, the whole house is tired, up all night taking care of Howard, whose ulcers pain him and won't heal him, but won't kill him either. Marta finally finishes making the tonic Catalina gulps it down, taking multiple dosages. She starts having a seizure. Hearing Naomi's screams, Florence and her merry crew of servants storm in. Naomi is lambasted, the tonic is confiscated, and Mary, the mute, vacant servant, is now a permanent chaperone to Naomi and Catalina's meetings. Dr. Cummings says that the tonic has opium in it, which Dr. Camarillo denies. Marta only uses local herbs, and opium is not local. Catalina sneaks a note to Naomi with the words, This is proof, with a page from Ruth's diary, where Ruth says she plans to kill. Naomi asks Francis if he's ever seen a ghost at high place. And Naomi says there are two reasons people see ghosts. Extrasensory perception, basically people willing things into being, and a chemical reaction, such as mercury vapours in the materials, like wallpaper that can make people think that they're going mad. Francis tells Naomi she should leave High Place and compares her to his dad. He cautions Naomi not to trust Howard, Florence or Virgil and says that just because there are no ghosts doesn't mean that you can't be haunted. Um, you don't say. Naomi takes a bath and dreams that Virgil is there. That strange sexual attraction that she despises pulls an immobile Naomi in. Virgil kisses her. The ceiling disappears and a snake hatches from an egg and wraps around, swallowing its tail. Naomi wakes up and finds herself dripping wet in Virgil's bedroom. After trying to make her stay, Virgil walks her back to her room. Okay, at this point, Naomi decides what I would have done as soon as I started having those funky dreams. She's going to leave High Place and deal with Catalina when she gets back to Mexico City. Naomi packs her suitcase, intending to leave the next day. At dinner, Virgil informs Naomi that with Catalina's money, they're reopening the mines. The family take Naomi to see Howard in his bedroom. Howard wants Naomi to stay, join this happy, happy family, literally. Page 203. She did not expect him to be lying there, over the blankets naked. His skin was terribly pale and his veins "'contrasted grotesquely against his whiteness, "'indigo lines running up and down his body. "'Yet, that was not the worst of it. "'One of his legs was hideously bloated, "'crusted over with dozens of large, dark boils. "'She had no idea what they were. "'Not tumours, no.' For they pulsed quickly, and their fullness contrasted with his emancipated body, the skin grown taut over the bones, except for that leg where the boils grew, as thick as barnacles upon a ship's hull. It was horrid, horrid, and she thought he was a corpse, afflicted with the ravages of putrefaction. But he lived. His chest rose and dipped, and he breathed. You must get closer. Virgil whispered in her ear and clasped her tight by the arm. Shock had prevented Naomi from moving, but now that she felt his arm closing over her, she attempted to shove Virgil away and rushed to the door. He yanked her back, though with a vicious strength that threatened to snap her bones. She gasped in pain, but she still fought him. "Come on, help me here," Virgil said, looking at Francis. "Let me go!" she screamed. Francis did not approach them but Florence grabbed Noemi's free arm and together Virgil and the woman dragged Noemi towards the head of the bed. She twisted her body and managed to kick the night table, sending a porcelain chamber pot crashing onto the floor. Kneel down, Virgil ordered. No, Noemi said. They shoved her down, Virgil's fingers digging into her flesh as he placed a hand behind her neck. Howard Doyle turned his head upon the pillow and looked at her. His lips were as bloated as his leg, crusted with black growth and a trail of dark fluid dripped from his chin, staining his bedclothes. This was the source of the bad smell in the room, and up close the stench was so awful she thought she would retch. "'My God!' she said, and she tried to get up, to scuttle away, but Virgil's hand was a band of iron round her neck, and he was pushing her even closer to the old man. As the man was rising in his bed, turning and stretching out a thin hand, his fingers digging into Naomi's hair and pulling their faces closer, she was able, at this disgustingly intimate distance, to clearly see the colour of his eyes. They were not blue. The colour was diluted by a bright golden sheen, like flecks of molten gold. Howard Doyle smiled at her, showing off his stained teeth, stained with black, and then he pressed his lips against hers. Naomi felt his tongue in her mouth and then saliva burning down her throat as he pressed himself against her and Virgil propped her in place. He let her go after long, agonizing minutes, and Naomi was able to gasp and turn her head. She closed her eyes. She felt very light. Her thoughts were scattered, drowsy. My God, she thought to herself, my God, stand up, run, over and over again. When she looked around, she tried to focus her eyes and saw that she was in a cave. Naomi dreams of Howard's past and begins to make sense of all her previous images. An ill, slightly different looking Howard is in a hidden cave that is covered with mushrooms with a ragtag outcast religious group. Their priests have a symbiotic relationship with the mushrooms, which cure disease and prolong life. When their priests die, the group engages in ritual cannibalism, preserving the priest's memories and ancient knowledge within the Myokosia mushrooms, basically a mushroom network. A cured Howard marries one of the women, drowns the priest and becomes the group's god and sets fire to the cave, burning the people inside A really nice guy is our Howard. Howard and his pregnant wife escape. He then refines the terrifying mushroom power of the mushrooms, keeping it to himself. Howard embellishes the mushroom ritual. When his pregnant wife gives birth, Howard slices up the baby to be eaten up by the rest of the Doyles. The exhausted mother is embalmed alive and thrown into a pit to become the food for the mushrooms. To keep the Doyle's bloodlines pure, he marries his sisters. When Howard's body becomes enfeebled, he uploads his consciousness or soul into the gloom, which is the shared space the mushrooms and the embalmed woman inhabit, where all the Doyle memories and consciousness are stored. Howard then shifts or transmutates his consciousness into another young Doyle male body. Howard's been doing this act for 300 years. Whoa. Essentially, Howard has created his own little cult, with the Doyles worshipping him as God. Howard and Leland port the soil from their previous English home, with the mushroom spores in them, to Mexico. And there, Howard rebuilds the gloom by sacrificing Agnes when she delivers, although Agnes seems to have delivered a tumour instead of her baby. Agnes is then embalmed alive for the mushrooms to penetrate, off, take over, cover and recreate the gloom. Their air in and around high point is basically saturated with the gloom spores. Literally, to breathe in in high place is to be infected with the gloom. The reason the Doyles can't leave and won't leave is because they are controlled by the gloom. The gloom gives Howard the power to control people and make them do what he wants. All the dreams, images and hallucinations Noemi has been experiencing have been the memories, longings and desires of Howard and the Doyle women. Those not compatible with the gloom are driven mad and killed, their bodies buried in mass graves to feed and nourish the mushrooms and spores. Those not killed become zombie-like, like the vacant servants. Noemi is super compatible with the gloom and Howard wants her to marry Frances. All that incestuous inbreeding has created a bit of a problem and has made st- ha- d- the Doyle sterile. Howard needs Noemi for her reproductive capabilities and her money. A furious and scared Noemi says no and tries to attack Howard who turns into a snake that wraps itself around her. The voice in her ear keeps telling her to... Open your eyes. Naomi tries to run, but the gloom makes her collapse. Virgil brings her back. He forces her to bathe while he watches. Dr. Cummings, who's a distant Doyle, tells Naomi the house will attack if she tries to leave. Francis secretly starts to help Naomi and Catalina, giving them dosages of the tonic which lessen the hold of the gloom. Since the, neither the Doyles nor the house know Spanish, Naomi and Francis communicate in Spanish. Francis tells Naomi to go along with the marriage. Naomi dreams of Ruth telling her she needs to kill Howard. That she, Ruth, didn't do it correctly. Naomi opens her eyes and Ruth disappears. Naomi is forced to write a letter to her father saying that she's staying at high place. Francis gives Naomi a razor blade as a weapon. He tells her he won't be able to run with her as the gloom won't let him go. That night, Naomi marries Francis, and Virgil attempts to molest her. Naomi pushes him off. She runs to Catalina's room and finds her unresponsive. But before Francis, Naomi, and Catalina can run, Florence stops them with a gun. In Howard's bedroom, she tells Howard he has to transmutate now and take over Francis' body. Francis, Catalina, and Naomi are forced to kneel and pray. Naomi begins to hear that buzzing sound from the cemetery. Pandemonium ensues. Catalina stabs Howard in the face with Dr. Cummings' scalpel. Cummings and Florence spasm and fall. Florence attempts to shoot Naomi, but Francis stops her, and in the scuffle, Florence is shot. Naomi takes the gun and shoots Howard twice and runs with Francis and Catalina. Phew, talk about action! The house is not going to give up so easily and fights back. The stairs turn to snakes and the trio run to the burial chamber in the cemetery. Naomi knows this chamber, has dreamt of it. It's the heart of High Place. On the diocese, Naomi sees Agnes's body frozen in a scream with mushrooms erupting everywhere. The buzzing is Agnes, screaming her pain, her agony and her hurt. Agnes, her body and her consciousness, consumed by the mushrooms, is an internal nightmare. The buzzing gets louder and louder. Virgil appears. I was wondering where he was. It's been his plan all along to kill Howard, so he can have absolute power and control the gloom. Francis tell Virgil to let Catalina and Noemi go, that everything that they the Doors have done is wrong. Page 289. His fist connected with Virgil's mouth, and Virgil let out an angry, startled gasp. Virgil's eyes narrowed as he wiped his mouth clean. "'I'll make you bite off your own tongue,' Virgil said simply." The men had changed positions, and now Naomi could see Francis's face, the blood welling down his temple as he heaved and shook his head. And Naomi saw the way his eyes were open and wide, his way his hands were shaking, and how his mouth was opening and closing like a fish gasping for air. Dear God, Virgil was going to make him do it. He would make him eat his own tongue. Naomi heard the growing buzzing of bees behind her. Look. She turned around and her eyes fell on the face of Agnes, her lipless mouth set in an eternal circle of pain, and she pressed her hands against her ears, furiously wondering why he wouldn't stop, why that noise wouldn't cease, returning over and over again. And it struck her, all of a sudden, this fact that she had missed, which should have been obvious from the very beginning, that the frightening and twisted gloom that surrounded them was the manifestation of all the suffering that had been inflicted on this woman agnes driven to madness driven to anger driven to despair and even now a sliver of that woman remained and that sliver was still screaming in agony she was the snake biting its tail she was a dreamer eternally bound to a nightmare eyes closed even when her eyes had turned to dust the buzzing was her voice she could not communicate properly any longer but could still scream of unspeakable horrors inflicted on her Of ruin and pain. And when the coherent memory and thought had been scraped away, the searing rage remained, burning the minds of anyone who wandered near it. What did she want? Simply to be released from this torment, simply to wake up, but she couldn't. She wouldn't ever wake up. The buzzing was growing and threatening to hurt Naomi again and overwhelm her mind, But she reached down and grabbed the oil lamp with quick, rough fingers, and rather than thinking about what she was about to do, she thought of that single phrase that Ruth had spoken, open your eyes, open your eyes, and her steps were quick and determined, and for each step she whispered, open your eyes, until she stared at Agnes again. Sleepwalker, she whispered, time to open your eyes and she tossed the lamp against the corpse's face. It instantly ignited the mushrooms around Agnes's head, creating a halo of fire, and then tongues of fire began to spread quickly down the wall, and the organic matter apparently as good as kindling, making the mushrooms blacken and pop. Vagil screamed. It was a horse-like terrible scream, and he collapsed upon the floor and scratched the tiles, attempting to stand up. Francis also collapsed. Angus was the gloom, and the gloom was part of them, and the sudden damage to Agnes, to the web of mushrooms, must seem like neurons igniting. Naomi, for her part, felt jolted into complete awareness, and the gloom shoving her away. She rushed down the diocese, and immediately went to her cousin, pressing her hand against Catalina's face. "'Are you all right?' she asked, "Yes," Catalina said, nodding vigorously. "'Yes.' And on the floor, both Virgil and Frances were moaning. Virgil tried to reach for her, tried to lift himself up, and Nurmi kicked him in the face, but he clawed at her, scrubbed to grab hold of her leg. Naomi stepped back, and he was hold, extending a hand, still grasping and pulling himself forward. Even though he couldn't walk, he crawled towards her, gritting his teeth. Noomi took another step back, fearing he'd pounce on her. Catalina picked up the knife Francis had dropped, and now she stood over her husband and brought the knife down into his face when he looked upon her, piercing an eye in imitation of what she'd done to Howard Doyle. Virgil fend- fell down and with a muffled groan, and Catalina pressed the knife in deeper, her lips closed. Not a single word or sob escaped them. Virgil twisted, and his mouth fell open, spitting and gasping. Then he lay still. The women held hands and looked down at Virgil. His blood was smearing the black head of the snake, painting it red, and Naomi wished they had a great big knife, for she would have cut off his head if she could, like her grandmother had cut off the head of the fish. She knew, by the way, Catalina clutched her hand, that she wished for the same. Then Francis muttered a word, and Naomi knelt next to him and tried to get him to stand up. Come on, she said, we need to run. It's dying. We are dying, Francis said. Yes, we're going to die if we don't get out quickly, Naomi agreed. The whole room was quickly catching on fire, patches and patches of mushrooms bursting into flames, and the yellow curtain she had pulled aside was also burning. I can't leave. Yes, you can, Naomi said, gritting her teeth and coaxing him to his feet. She couldn't make him walk, though. Catalina, help us, she yelled each took one of Francis's arms and placed it over their shoulders, half lifting, half dragging him towards the metal gate. It was easy to swing it open, but then Nomi eyed the steps leading up and wondered how they were going to manage the climb. But there was no other way. When she looked back, she saw Virgil on the floor, stray sparks falling on him and the chamber burning bright. There were also mushrooms growing on the walls of the staircase, and there too seemed to be catching fire. They had to hurry. Up they went as fast as they could and Naomi pinched Francis to get him to open his eyes and assist them. He managed to climb several steps with their aid before Naomi was forced to literally drag him up the last steps, stumbling into the dusty chamber with crypts running from one side to the other. Naomi glimpsed silver plaques, rotting coffins, empty vases that might have once contained flowers, a few of the little glowing mushrooms upon the ground, providing the faintest immol- illuminations. The door leading to the mausoleum was mercifully open, courtesy of Virgil. When they stepped out, the mists and the night were waiting to embrace them. The gate, she told Catalina. Do you know the way to the gate? It's too dark. The mist, her cousin said. Yes, the mist that had frightened Naomi with its mysterious golden blur that was buzzing had been Agnes, but Agnes was a pillar of fire beneath their feet now, and they must find their way out of this place. "'Francis, you need to guide us to the gate,' Naomi said. The young man turned his head and looked at Naomi with half-lidded eyes and managed to nod and point to the left. They went to the direction, him leaning on Naomi and Catalina, stumbling often. The gravestones rose like broken teeth from the earth, and he grunted, pointed another way. Naomi had no idea where they were headed. It could be that they were walking in circles, and wouldn't that be ironic? Circles.' The mist gave them no quarter until at last she saw that the iron gate of the cemetery rising in front of them, the serpent eating its tail, greeting the trio. Catalina pushed the door open and they were on the path that led back to the house. The house is burning, Frances said, as they stood by the gates catching their breath. Naomi realised that this was the case. There was a distant glow visible even through the mist. She couldn't see High Place, but she could picture it. The ancient books in the library... "'quickly catching fire, paper and leather "'burning fast mahogany furniture "'and heavy curtains with tassels smouldering, "'glass cases filled with precious metal and silver objects "'crackling, the nymph and her loyal post shrouded in flames "'as bits of the ceiling fell on her feet, "'the fire flowing up the staircase like a relentless river, "'making floorboards snap, "'while the Doyle servants stood still on the steps frozen.' Old paintings bubbling, faded photographs curling into nothingness, doorways arched with fire. Howard Dawes' portrait of his wives were consumed by flames, and his bed now a bed of fire, and his decayed and heaving body choked by smoke, while on the floor his physician lay immobile, and the fire began to lick at the bed covers, began to eat. Howard Doyle, inch by inch, and the old man screamed, but there was no one who would assist him. Invisible beneath the paintings and the linens and the plates and the glass, she imagined masses of fine threads, delicate mycelium, also burning and snapping, fueling the conflagration. The house blazed in the distance. Let it burn until it was all reduced to ashes. Let's go, Naomi muttered. Dr. Camarillo and Marta patch up the trio, giving them more of the tonic. The police and Naomi's father are on the way to figure out what has been happening at a High Place. Francis dreamed that the High Place repaired itself, that it was even grander than before. He tells Naomi some mushrooms spout more easily after fire. Francis thinks killing himself would end the bad blood for good. Naomi wants Francis to come to Mexico City with her. She tells Francis, we'll stay together and you won't be alone. Frances thinks Naomi is a dream, but she says she's real. Naomi kisses Frances with love. I really enjoyed Mexican Gothic. I picked it up at the airport before embarking on a long international flight. Even though I'm not a fan of horror, I'm really ashamed to say that the book's gorgeous cover screamed out to me. Tim Green, the illustrator, deserves a lot of credit for that initial pick-up. I finished the book over a couple of days. Some parts were easier to put down than others. Gothic tales like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein foreground fears of modernity and technology, and I especially enjoyed how Mexican Gothic engages with this tradition in the depiction of the gloom. The book made me think about current apprehensions of cyborgs and AI, the fear of emergent and future technologies. The concept of sharing or uploading human consciousness into a computer network to preserve life or technology thinking for itself or and subsuming humanity, well, these are ideas and issues we're still tackling. Marina Garcia's writing is accessible, atmospheric and gorgeous. You do feel like you're hallucinating in some of the passages. She's good. Marina Garcia really captures the porous relationship between waking and dreaming, The lush writing easily conveys the vivid, lurid and sometimes highly sexualized dreams that Naomi was having. I could absolutely visualize the Victorian colours of that wallpaper. However, some people may find the style and story to be slow, repetitive and charged with too many details. The narration can drag in some parts and it may seem as not much is happening in the narrative. It really gets going in the last 50 pages or so, as the strangeness, dreams are all put together and it hurtles to its fantastical conclusion. Unfortunately for me, I love all the details. It made for a richer narrative. Mexican Gothic is not a horror per se. I don't think I could get through one. It remains true to classic Gothic literature and reminded me of the yellow wallpaper and the movie Pan's Labyrinth. Mexican Gothic pays homage to the wild and strange in its characters' names. Monroe Garcia wrote the story after visiting Little Cornwall, a region near the Mexican Andes where the British replicated a mini England, complete with English architecture and a cemetery while the tombstones all faced England. It's a town haunted by the past, really, or maybe a people trying desperately to hold on to something that's disappearing fast, much like Howard grasping into power and immortality. Noemi Taboda is named after the 1960s Mexican Gothic movie director Carlos Enrique Taboda. Howard Doyle bears the name of two writers of mystery and suspense and the strange, Howard P. Lovechild and Arthur Cannon Doyle. Lovechild was also a known racist and a believer in eugenics. Mexican Gothic tackles the pseudoscience of eugenics and how it was utilized as a tool by colonial entities in their justification of conquest. For the Doyles, the end result of eugenics impurity is that ghoulish whiteness of their complexion and sterility. I appreciated the clever way Moreno-Garcia played with imagery, the feeding of the mushrooms, the hundreds of unknown and unnamed indigenous workers buried in mass graves to feed and keep alive the Doyle's power, a compelling and horrific metaphor to colonialism. In the colonial system, indigenous people really were bottom of the food chain, Their labour and bodies used and abused to keep the system going. Like the Spanish and the British, the House and Doyles are utterly alien on the landscape. High Places architecture sets it apart. As a living entity, neither the House nor the Doyles bother to learn Spanish and the language of the people they rule or lord over. I remember a linguistic professor once remarked that you know you have acquired proficiency in a language if you can dream in that language no one dreams in Spanish or in any indigenous language in Mexican Gothic, not even Naomi. I loved the use of the oberus. It was brilliant since it's usually linked with alchemy and eternal renewal or transmigration of souls. When the oberus appeared, I just knew we were going to transmigrate something, so I anticipated Howard's story. Sometimes I guess it pays to study anthropology. As I mentioned earlier, Mexican Gothic reminded me of the Yellow Wallpaper with its themes of family medicine, appearance versus reality, and the oppressive nature of gender roles. You can see that nod to Yellow Wallpaper in the issue of women's health and the mental well-being. Like the unnamed woman in the Yellow Wallpaper, Catalina is thought of as depressive and prescribed the rest cure, being confined to bed, no mental or physical activity. And like in the Yellow Wallpaper, the woman in the wall are prisoners unable to escape to find their way out. Initially, I wasn't sure I would like Naomi as a protagonist, but I was soon in her corner. Naomi is a very strong character. She's a little flighty, yes, but she's outspoken, spunky, confident, intelligent, headstrong, and Morena Garcia gives Naomi at the agency to come through at the end. She fights to see Catalina to get a second opinion, she stays around when others would have run, I definitely wouldn't have. Uh, towards the end I af- was kind of afraid that Naomi would revert to be uh, cheering her man on the sideline as he fights the villain heroine, but Naomi literally takes things into her own hands and sets Agnes and the gloom entity on fire. Bravo! We also know that Naomi a little bit. Uh, she had character development, but not as much as I would wanted but the other characters are somewhat flat and one-dimensional, except for Howard. I mean, that guy's just crazy on power and evil. I also wish we actually got a flavour of Mexico. I know I talked about Mexican history at the beginning, and I was looking for that. Except for a couple of pages in Chapter 1, I didn't really feel like we were in Mexico. It felt as if it could be a village in England or Czechoslovakia or any other place, which may have been Moreno Garcia's all along, maybe. Additionally, for a book set in Mexico in the 1950s, it also really felt very ahistorical. The story could have been set in any period and any place. But I guess these quabbles didn't really detract from a fun read. Other reads by Silvia moreno Garcia are Velvet Was the Night, The Beautiful Ones, and Gods of Jade and Shadow. I'll be definitely adding other books by Moreno Garcia on my to read pile. Here are some book club questions. Mexican gothic has many gothic tropes and reminded me of stories by Daphne du Maurier and Emily Bronte and of course Mary Shelley. Did Mexican gothic remind you of any other gothic stories or authors? Do you think Catalina was a stereotypical damsel in distress? Was Noemi a gothic heroine? What qualities do you look for or like in a heroine? What role does eugenics play in Mexican Gothic? How has eugenics shaped and influenced our society today? What does the Orboros and their motto, one is all, represent for the Doyles? Do you have a family motto? If so, what does it signify for you? How is motherhood, reproductive rights, handled in Mexican Gothic. What do you think makes a good mother? Catalina's mental health was brushed aside with confinement, drugs, and claims of depressive characteristics. How do we approach mental health now? Is it different? Does mental health have a gender component? I hope you get a chance to read Mexican Gothic soon. Bye-bye!